2 Corinthians chapter 12, really the second part to what we started looking at last week uh, in thinking about the markers of trusted ministry. Uh, honestly, if we were to think about it, there's probably lots and lots of markers. Uh, Paul gives three here, uh, and so that's obviously where we're spending our time as we work through the book of 2 Corinthians. You know, trust is something that is so fragile, it's so easily lost. Um, it's hard to give. Uh, if you've been deeply wounded, hurt by people, uh, you, you probably are much more reticent to give it away, uh, to just hand it to folks. Uh, it can sometimes come in shocking ways. Uh, when I was in seminary, I would travel and I, I'd do pulpit fill in the area uh, up in Wisconsin. And, uh, and so I did it just, I wanted to get as much preaching experience as possible, serve the local church and I'll never forget one, I drove multiple hours on a uh, Sunday, early, got up early Sunday morning. Uh, it was wintertime, frigid, <laughs> frigid outside in Wisconsin, drove a couple hours north and uh, preached uh, at, that ch- at a church. The pastor was away, it was, it was a pretty large church, uh, particularly for Wisconsin, it was about four or 500 folks. Uh, and then I, I spent the afternoon studying at the church and then preached that night, and the pastor was going to be back that evening. Uh, and so he got back that Sunday night and he ran the service, and I, and I just came up to preach. And when they took the offering, and this was not uncommon, they, uh, they took up a love offering for me. And he talked about how I was in seminary and, uh, you know, poor seminary student, and, you know, we're going to take up a love offering and, you know, give, what have you. Um, and so they took up the offering, and, and I, just to be honest with you, my heart was, I was like, this, this is going to be a huge blessing. I definitely had some, need, some needs, some bills. Uh, and the pastor said, hey, you know, before you leave, uh, hang out. And I uh, want to make sure we get that, get your reimbursement to you. I said, oh, that, you know, that's a blessing. You really don't go expecting, but you know, those, those are always a blessing. And so we met in his office, and he handed me a, um, you remember, I don't know if you can still get them. If you go to McDonald's, you can get those $5 gift ticket books. That's what he gave me. He said, here's your reimbursement. And, and uh, you know, seminary student, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, oh. Okay, and I said, because it sounded like when he took the offering, he goes, yeah, but we're a little bit under budget. And so, you know, the church, just honestly, a lot more came in than, than frankly, what you've earned. And so we're going to keep that. Trust was gone, pretty much, at that point, and uh, drove back onto college campus on fumes, uh, not even enough to put gas in my car. Uh, and I don't know that I ever even used the gift tickets from the five dollar i think i just was so turned off by it Uh, fast forward about four six weeks later somewhere in that uh the head of the seminary calls me in he was one who would orchestrate and work through pulpitville and he said oh pastor so-and-so in in this town um he's gonna be out of town again he asked specifically if you'd be willing to come back and preach and i turned that down I, i i went without that opportunity at that moment because honestly, I just didn't trust the guy. And, and I thought, if you'll do that, I'm just not sure where your integrity's at and whether or not you can be trusted. Trust in ministry is, is hard to get, easy to lose. And what's sh- shocking to us, if, if you're familiar with Corinthians at all, is Paul has done nothing to lose their trust. And yet he doesn't have it anymore. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. We'll actually look at even some more of those next week. But here as he's been working through what we call the full speech where he talks about what he's really done in ministry, he's come to this concluding moment in 2 Corinthians where he hits the spot and he's 
just laying out to them what they really should be seeing in ministry. And, and we want to learn from this both what to look for uh, in ministry for trust, value, but, but even more specifically, I really want to call us to do ministry in a trustworthy way. And so uh, the text actually runs all the way back in verse 11 and goes down. So I'm going to read the whole portion, although we're just going to be spending our time on this last one. We looked at stamina and signs last week, and we'll consider sacrifice this week. The beginning of verse 11, if you have your Bibles, follow along. He says this, I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. You read this text and at first glance, uh, it might seem a little surprising. Why are the Corinthians mad, particularly in this section, that Paul won't take money from them. <laughs> Why does that bother them? And so very quickly, just to remind you, in Greco-Roman world and their culture, uh, in that entire region, and it was the dominant culture of, of the Bible, New Testament setting, they had this system called patronage. And what would happen is a traveling philosopher, wise man, orator, public speaker would go into a town, he'd begin speaking, and very wealthy people uh, would become his patron. And so they would provide housing for him, food for him. People would come to this wealthy person's home to hear this trusted speaker, this well-known guy, this wise man, this philosopher. And it was a way of them kind of riding the celebrity coattails of the guy. Uh, they would be like your ancient world version of groupies, right? So uh, I'm not the band, I'm not the guy, but I I know them. They're my friend. I work with them. Well, Paul, when he goes to do ministry, and this really becomes his M.O. for ministry throughout his apostolic ministry, when he goes, he decides, I'm not going to let anyone become my patron. I'm not going to take money from these wealthy people. I'm going to go into this new area uh, where the vast majority have never heard the gospel. There may be a few believers here that have been scattered as a result of what happened at Pentecost. But I'm going to go and I'm going to preach the gospel uh, to unreached people, to Gentiles. I'm not going to take their money. And we're going to establish a church, gather the saved, uh, mature them, help them to grow, put elders there, and then I'm going to go on to the next place. But I'm not going to do this patron system. And this really made them angry. Paul refuses to do the patron system because he's concerned that he will, first of all, be viewed like every other traveling wise guy. And Paul knows that the gospel is a far greater treasure than some worldly philosophy. Number two, Paul recognizes that it would be easy to not trust one of these guys because if you're in the pocket of the rich guy, we all know at the end of the day that we question what you say. 
right? Like, so we question, we tend to struggle in American culture with politicians in some ways because we know that, that lots of them get lots of money from different groups. And so we're like, well, are your votes driven by that money? Are you deciding to do this for the money? And, and so we question, Paul knew there'd be a question then about his character and the gospel message itself if, the, if he's receiving patronage. People begin wondering, well, you're just saying what that rich guy wants you to say. Or worse than that, you're avoiding saying what the rich guy wants you to say. And so Paul says, for these reasons, I'm not going to pervert the gospel. I'm not going to bring it into, into ill repute. I'm not going to have it questioned. I won't do patronage. Nobody else had a problem with this. Thessalonians didn't have a problem with this. Macedonians didn't have a problem with this. Philippi doesn't have a problem with this. Corinthians got a problem with this. And so the rich people in Corinth are irritated because they don't get to ride the celebrity coattails of Paul. And so it's already bugging them a little bit. And then these super apostles, and that's kind of Paul's, frankly, sarcastic word for these guys. These super apostles come into Corinth, and they take the patronage. And so they look at Paul, and they say, look at Paul. He doesn't have enough to eat, doesn't dress well, uh, he's poor. It's his own fault, really, because this is the way God designed it. And it's okay to, to make a great deal of wealth. Uh, and, and be a minister of the gospel. It's okay to be really, to be a celebrity. That's fine. Paul's getting all this rejection, and that's a Paul problem. You know what Paul has? Paul has a martyr complex. And Paul's just trying to get the best of you. And so you have these super apostles fueling the insecurities of Corinth. And on top of that, you had the rich guy in Corinth that Paul preaches to them to discipline out of the church. So this rich guy's got influence and power. He's having this weird affair with his stepmother, and Paul's like, discipline this guy in the church. They have, like, world's worst business meeting ever. Dude's angry. He's yelling at Paul. Everybody else is like, whoa, like eating the popcorn. Look at the show. And, and Paul's wounded, and Paul leaves. And so all of this is going on. So we would think, why would it bug you to not take money? Why would it bother them that Paul wouldn't take their money? That's what's going on. And so in many ways, it's this cultural issue it's being fueled by false teachers these super apostles it's it's being fueled by this guy that was disciplined by the church who by this point is now repentant but there hasn't been full restoration that's part of what he had to do in second corinthians here and so it's come to this moment and and really what they're doing is they're calling paul's good evil they're taking paul's sacrifice and saying that it's selfish. They're taking his suffering, his going without, his working hard, and they're turning it into some weird power-grabbing, dishonest move to control them. One that ultimately limits ministry, because look how much more free Paul would be able to do ministry if he wasn't working as a tent maker, if he would just take her money. And so here's the, here's the thing, though. None of us are apostles. That, that's done, right? Uh, there's no, so none of us are going to take the apostolic mantle up Go, to, go out to Corinth and try to start a new church. And so here would be the question when we think about trusted ministry, what in the world then does that have to do with you and I? And I would actually boil it down to you this way. It's really all about love. Paul's doing this because he loves the gospel and he loves them. And here's Paul's perspective. Because I'm burdened for you, I'm not going to be a burden to you when I do ministry. Uh, maybe I can explain it this way. You ever gotten one of these mailers? You know, here's the key. Uh, I don't remember the last one I got it from. Maybe Jim Hudson. I don't, I don't Steve Padgett. I don't know. Get this mailer. Here's the key. My kids get excited. Scratch it off. It's going to tell you what you win. If you come in, your key fits in the car door. So you're supposed to scratch this off. It always says, like, you know, something amazing. It's got to be big. 
right? Because you're going to have to take time out of your day, so it's like 25 grand or a brand new Honda Pilot. And if he scratches off, bring this in. If gear geek fits, then, then it gets in. Well, we all know as you get older, all that is is an invitation to a strong arm sales pitch that's miserable. You know, and or maybe Unaway years away, years and years ago, we got some call from Unaway. You get a free vacation, come down, take a look at the showroom. I'm like, well, how long is the sales pitch? No more than 10 minutes. No more. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm like, I can endure that for three nights hotel in Myrtle Beach. An hour later, I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I've hit my limit. Right? They make a blessing a cursing. Uh, they, they've done research. They can literally find no one who ever won a free car this way. It's a 100% scam. I'm going to make you crawl across glass for me to bless you. And all it is is I'm really going to use you. And here's my fear. My guess is you've experienced this in your life where someone has wanted to serve you. But it's actually been more of a burden to you that they wanted to serve you than it was a blessing. And my greater fear is that at times we do ministry in a way that is a burden for the person we're supposed to be serving rather than us being burdened for them. Trusted ministry is always ministry that seeks not to be a burden to those that it serves because it loves them. It loves Christ. It loves them. And so what it says is I'm willing to pay the price for ministry for you. We need to learn to do trusted ministry that points to Jesus and not to us. And so we can work our way through the verses this way. First of all, we want to love exhaustingly. <laughs> love exhaustingly. What did Paul actually do here? We well, can see this in verses 14 and 15. Let's just unpack a little bit here. He says, here for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you. He gives this illustration we'll, talk, we'll unpack here in a few minutes in the sermon. For children are not obligated to save up for the parents, but parents for the children. Back at it, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul says he doesn't seek to be a burden to them, but rather he was burdened for them. He didn't want their silver and gold. He was on mission for their souls. Now what's fascinating about this is there's almost a there's a sister text in 1 Thessalonians. Now, now here's what's just amazing about this. It, the, the way the Thessalonians respond to this and the way the Corinthians respond to this could not be more different. These are 180 degrees from each other. But you see the same truths, and this tells us that it's Paul's pattern. And so as we work through the sermon, we can actually work through this together. Look how he s explains it in 1 Thessalonians to, to those folks. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you out of love, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul's work that he did was an all-day kind of affair. Uh, Acts 18 is the only place where it really references specifically what his trade was, and that was tent making. 
Now, tent making uh, was kind of this umbrella term that involved any kind of large sewing that went on. So that would be everything from tents, yes, the repair of that, uh, large canvases that would be erected over booths where they would sell things, and, and then the other one is sails on ships. Well, Corinth is, a, is this hotbed of mercantile trade and people traveling, and so Paul was probably doing all these kinds of things. Um, you can't keep preacher hands, smooth, uncallous hands, and be a tent maker. You're going to be sticking yourself with a needle. You're handling rough materials. It's hard physical work. Now, what's interesting about the hard physical work is it's the kind of hard physical work, though, that you can be sitting down for a large portion, and it's a little bit like muscle memory, mindless work. You can be doing it, get this, while you're having conversations with other people. That's why when Paul does this with Ananias and, uh, excuse me, not Ananias, sorry, um, with Aquila and Priscilla, right, the good couple, right, they didn't get killed before the church, with Aquila and Priscilla, he's able to disciple them while he's doing it. This is, becomes evangelistic because people are coming to get their tents made, sails repaired, and Paul's able to share the gospel with them. But it's hard physical work all day. It's mindless in the sense he can do other things. He can even probably dictate letters to his companions but it's work. It's the kind of work you get to the end of the day and you're tired. Physically tired. Now I've worked I've worked construction, I I've done office furniture, I've I've done I've done all kinds of just physically tiring work. The work I do now is mentally tiring. And so lots of times if I've done mentally tiring work, what actually is a blessing to do is to do physical things. When you've done physically exhausting work, it's a blessing to not do something physical, just have to do something mental. But here's the reality. If you've worked a hard day, the last thing in the world you want to do is spend your evening engaged with, serving, trying to answer people's questions. And yet, that's exactly what Paul did. He worked in an exhausting physical way all day, every day, just so he wouldn't be a burden to these churches in any way shape or form he didn't view people as prospects to build his own kingdom he viewed them as souls in desperate need of the gospel and the truth you know how paul viewed the corinthians or the thessalonians or the macedonians he viewed them the way the good samaritan viewed this wounded man and he sees the one in need he sees the one that's hurting. He sees the one that's broken. He sees the one who cannot rescue themselves. And what does he do? He, he stops his journey. This guy's clearly a merchant traveling. He halts his business function so that he then can take his own money. And he doesn't know this dude. He didn't know him from Adam. Right? Like, there's all kinds of questions. Why were you traveling alone? Why did you travel at a time when the bandits could get you? Uh, when we know the region the, from Jerusalem to Jericho is actually a, a famous valley where lots of people got robbed. So why are you there doing this? Why did you travel at such a time that you could get jumped? Maybe you deserved it. Maybe you're a runaway. Who knows here? He didn't question, does this man's character deserve my love? He just gave it to him. And so he spends himself to care for this man he takes his own resources wine and his oil uh, both as, as, as an anesthetic and as a kind of ancient antibiotic and and tries to treat the man's wounds he cares for him in a way that he leaves him in a trusted place and promises that he will return he loves him deeply this is what paul's saying i looked at you as desperately needy people and i was willing to take on the physical 
wearying task necessary so that I would never be a burden to you. There is an undeniable physical cost to doing ministry. Whether you look at it in the story of the Good Samaritan, whether you see it through the life of Jesus, I I think of John chapter 4 where he's tired from his walking, he's been walking since the morning, he sits down at a well, he's thirsty, and he spends his whole afternoon uh, ministering to this woman at the well. Or whether it's through the example of Paul. And I firmly believe we live in a culture that says I'll fit ministry in where I'm not tired. And Paul says, my ministry started where I was tired. He didn't view ministry as something to avoid because it was going to expend himself. Paul looks at it, he goes, it's going to cost me physically, emotionally, with my time, with my own resources, it's going to cost me to bless these people. It's going to cost me to not be a burden to them. And it's going to cost me for this ultimately to be a sign of love to them. And he, and he pictures it with this, this phrase, he was willing to spend and be spent for them. I, I love how Jesus puts it in John chapter 15. I mean, he's, this is the, at the tail end of the Uh, He is the vine and we are the branches. He says, this greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's clearly talking about his own death for the lost. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I I think lots of times people look at this and they actually miss the process. And actually the process is like this. It's love that leads to sacrifice for strangers. Because you don't become his friend until you repent and believe. wow you know the truth is the closer we are relationally should be the easier it is to serve one another but it's a little bit like when jesus is giving tests of love he doesn't talk about how well we love our friends he says the pharisees even greet their friends on the streets he asks how well do we love our enemies how well do we love people we don't feel close to The sacrifice comes to the stranger, like the broken man by the side of the road. It costs the good Samaritan his time and his money and his personal risk. Jesus, frankly, is the ultimate good Samaritan. And he has called us into that. He said, come and and receive my ministry, and then come and do this ministry. It's not just that we say, oh man, I've been so blessed by the Good Samaritan Jesus. And then the next time we journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, or from Jericho to Jerusalem, or from here to Harbison, or frankly on a Sunday morning coming here, and we think, yeah, but that's not really my responsibility. Or, if we're honest, I just don't know that I have the time, money, or energy for that. Ministry that seeks to not be a burden to others because it is burden for others will be physically, emotionally, mentally, and financially taxing ministry. It will cost us. Can I just ask you, do you minister in a way that is spending and being spent for others? Do you structure your calendar 
your budget, your emotional and time reserves for the sake of blessing others? Do you minister to the point of exhaustion? Well, see, see, I'm just not even sure that that's really healthy for me to do, you know, because I just remind you that last week I encouraged us to live in God's economy of routine Sabbathing kind of living. And no, we're not under the Sabbath law, but but my word, we're fools if we don't recognize that God has structured our week in such a way that he intends for us to step aside from work for worship, to recharge, not to vacate from ministry. How is this different from endurance that we looked at last week? Here's how different. This is what builds endurance. You never learn endurance if you're not pushed to the point of exhaustion in anything, physically, emotionally, you know, God is kind that he knows the trials of our lives. And, and lots of people, you know, they love this phrase, God don't give you more than you can handle. Baloney. God brings things in your life and you start to learn, I can do nothing except through the power of the Spirit. But you'll learn that when you're broken and at the end of yourself. It changes you. It, it radically alters who you are. One of the ways that you learn this is you make commitments to do ministry when you can't foresee what it's going to look like in two months. Do you know why? Because then suddenly you arrive two months later and it's like super inconvenient to do what you committed to do. You're like, ugh. And so suddenly God forces you to start moving pieces of your time, your emotional, physical, uh, spiritual reserves, your finances around because you made a commitment and the Bible says let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, if you say you're going to do it, then by all means, and yes, there are things that can happen that prevent you, but by and large, you can do it. It's just going to cost you. Have you ever committed to have someone over to your home and then that night arrives and you're like, I do not want to have people in my home tonight? Join the club. And you're like, you know, but I'm not, you know, and if, like, let's just, okay, let's be real, right? So you start going through the excuses, right? Do I have a fever? Are the kids sick? Do I have a cough? <laughs> right? No, I just, I don't have a good excuse. I'm just going to go through with it. I'm going to do it. You know what my experience has been? At the end of that, my wife and I look at each other and we're like, well, that was a Jesus spanking. And what do we mean by that? He gave grace. He gave strength where there was no strength. We were blessed. Because we obeyed. Not because we had faith for it. Not because I felt like I had the reserves for it. But you made the commitment you had to follow through on it. I'm afraid, and I don't mean this in a political way, but I'm afraid that American Christian culture is snowflake culture. And ministry stops when it gets hard. And you know what you end up with that? You end up with people that can't run 100 yards because they got no endurance. And so then what happens when trials come? You fall apart. There's no, there's no history in you. There's no remembering of being at the end of yourself. And Jesus showed up. 
and you saw it, were strengthened by it, and you grew from it. Ministry builds endurance as we are expended, and Paul says, I worked to the point of exhaustion to serve you folks. Jesus says, this is what I call you to do. This is what love for your neighbor looks like. Paul examples it and calls the church to it. But he doesn't just love exhaustingly, he loves righteously. Uh, You can see this in verses 16 through 19. And this is kind of an amazing moment here that reveals the extent to which uh, we and our, if we think evil of other people, the extent to which we will craft a conspiracy theory that frees us from seeing the truth. Because that's what they do in Corinth. So you see in verse 16 through 19, uh, he says, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. So the accusation that they make is that Paul sent Titus and another brother. He sends Timothy. He sends these people. And lots of times the Corinthians might take up an offering for these guys to help them on their way back. And the Corinthians are saying, you know what I bet Paul did? I bet Paul skimmed a little bit off the top of that. Paul wants an offering for the church in Jerusalem. That's Paul's way of looking like he doesn't ask us for anything But you know what Paul's going to do? Paul's going to take some of that money and buy some new clothes. Paul, we're too smart for you. And Paul's looking at them and he's saying, wait a minute. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not have the same, did we not take the same steps? This is what he backs it up with in in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul says this is not the reality. I haven't been going after you in this way. It's it's so similar to something he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul says, You saw what we did. So the Thessalonians see what Paul did, and they're like, yeah, man, Paul worked hard, and Paul sacrificed for us because Paul loves Jesus, and Paul loves us, and we're so thankful for that. And and that's amazing. The Corinthians over here, and they're like, I wonder what side gig Paul's running. How do you defend yourself against crazy conspiracy theory? You can't. Like, how how do you even answer that? And Paul's like, that's, that's my plan? My plan is to be so crafty and so deceptive to take advantage from you, of you, and so I'm going to use other people? Listen, where there's no evident cost, it's actually easier for people to suspect and ask the question, what's in it for you? When there's obvious cost, you, the only thing you're left with is crazy conspiracy theory. It's, it's a little bit, you know, you, you see it sometimes um, in parenting. I think of it myself. Like, I don't, it's not about my kids, but my own heart, you know, there's questions like, uh, you know, are your parents in it for them, right? You know, why would they do that? And then all of a sudden you have a baby. Man, that baby cries like every two, three hours. Man, don't shut up, man. You got to feed that kid. You got to, you got to change that kid. You look forward to the day diapers are over because you're like, finally, I can save some money and I ain't got to change this. Nobody told me I was on wiping duty for like another year, right? Like, it's just like, oh, man. If you've never 
cleaned up puke before, right? Like, then all of a sudden you got a kid and they're throwing up and like, oh, and they never throw, it's never convenient, right? They don't make it to the bathroom at three in the afternoon. It's like two in the morning. And you, parentally, I don't know if you got, guys got there, like you're, I don't, God does something. Your, your ears are attuned to the noise, right? And, and I have one of my kids that like cough a little bit before they do. I mean, it's been 2.15 in the morning. I've heard like a cough and I'm like, bing, eyes open. Ah, and I'm, like, I'm moving, right? I, I could like, I could set some like Olympic records, right? And you just, and you just realize you never know the cost till you're there. And then you just realize your eyes are open. This is costly. And so what's fascinating is one of the ways Paul is, is defending himself is he says, my righteous behavior was obvious because of the cost. What was in it for me? What was I to, to gain from this? Like, what? like Paul was the rising star. And now he's like at times beaten naked, abandoned, shipwrecked, working to the point of exhaustion. If he wanted their money, he could have had their money. He didn't want their money. He wasn't on mission for their money. He was on mission for their souls. He wasn't on mission even for their gratitude. He wasn't even on mission for their affection. He knew, though, if they loved God, they'd love him, but he understands the fact that that's not happening in Corinth. He operated in a pure way. He operated in a holy way. Uh, he, He says it, when he, when he references there that he's speaking in the sight of God. It's interesting because we've come through the full speech, and in one sense, Paul has been defending himself. And to be frank with you, our translations don't do the best job with the language. He's not saying none of this is defense, but he's saying that's not my primary motive. That's not really why. I'm not ultimately writing to prove myself to you. And that is a reminder of what he said way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You might remember that. That's when he first starts dealing with these accusations where Paul's not very fruitful, Paul doesn't speak well, Paul's poor, Paul's not successful, Paul's ugly. (laughs) He's got all these things. And Paul's like, I don't answer to you. You ever really want to make somebody mad who's judging you? Let them know you don't answer to them. That really ticks them off. And it's a little bit like here when Paul says, you're mad that I'm not a burden to you. Guess what? I'm coming a third time. Ain't going to be a burden then either. Paul had no problem just calling it like it is, saying truth. And and in 1 Corinthians 4, he put it this way. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul's telling us, I don't trust my own conscience alone. Because maybe I'm wrong. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul's point is simply this. His behavior is obviously righteous. It stands for itself. God knows the truth. Far greater judgment would come from God on Paul if he has been this deceptive, conniving, sinful person. But that is a lie. On top of that, Paul's holy method of ministry has been for them. They think evil of the righteous nature of Paul's ministry. How do you defend against that anyway? Even the good you do is being called evil. It's eerily like Jesus healing a man and them saying, oh, that power must come from Satan. The level of self-deception and confirmation bias of some people here in Corinth is just shocking. They think that they're discerning. In reality, they're judging falsely. How do you minister in that kind of context? 
You ever been dealing with someone that you can tell is thinking evil of you? The Lord puts them on your heart and you want to bless them. And then you're trying to figure out all the nuances of ways they may think evil of you by what you're about to do for them. You ever been in a spot? I've been in a spot. Like, you know, the reality is God just burdened me to pray for them. I'll call them, text them, email them, let them know I'm praying for them. Ah, but they might think that I'm mad because I didn't see them at church last Sunday. You know what? Well, he burdened me on Tuesday. I'm going to wait till the next week. Is that how you function? Man, God burdened my heart to give them this. I just wanted to bless them. Uh, but they're going to think that I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a trade-off, right? I gave them this, but I expect something back from them. Or God burdened me to have them in my home, and, and they're gonna, I'm afraid they're going to think that I expect a return invitation. Like, sometimes that's just fear of man, and let's just be honest, and we're just not loving them because we need their approval. But then other times we've been burned by folks that think evil of us, and we're left caught. Like, how do I minister to someone who thinks, how do you minister to people like this? How do you minister in a context where it's just going to cost you, it's already costing you, and even the good things you do are going to cost you even more because they're going to think evil of you? Here's how you do it. Paul's made it very clear. Trusted ministry is driven, so driven out of a love for God and for them that it's even willing to take on the burden of their false judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm here to tell you that, that the weight of false judgment is like a car sitting on your chest. I used to have a guy I worked for, he said, do you know what a 300-pound gorilla is sitting on your chest? They'd be like, no, Brother Steve. He said, that's pressure. And he'd laugh. And say, now go do what I told you to do. I'm like, oh, thanks. Felt burdened already. But you chuckle and you'd be like, okay, can I just tell you, one of the worst pressures you can have when you're trying to just love and serve somebody is even the good things you do to love and serve them are judged wrongly. Even when you're not doing it for their approval. It's like even I'm doing the right thing, I'm getting kicked in the teeth. Now, if you don't think that that's a problem, go back and read the Psalms because one of David's primary complaints was why are the righteous suffering for being righteous? Jesus acknowledges this even on the Sermon on the Mount. Trusted ministry, though. What I'm learning from Paul is trusted ministry is driven so much by a heart of love for God and others that it's willing to take on the burden of false judgment and wrong accusations because it finds its contentment in God's approval and others' growth. He doesn't just love exhaustingly. He doesn't just love righteously, but he loves deeply. Paul gives us insight the way he thought about it. I skipped this. I want to come back to it. 14. B, he says, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul felt like their spiritual father. This truth has shown up several times in Corinthian letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16, 2 Corinthians 6, 13, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. In our sister text over here in 1 Thessalonians, he says, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom. In glory. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, the same chapter, he likens himself to a nursemaid or nursing mother. There's the, when Paul's thinking of an example or thinking of how he loves them, he can't think of a better example than that of a nursing mom or a loving parent, a loving dad, who just is sacrificially, exhaustingly, out of the depth of their affection, ministering to this person. 
man, it, it just continues to be a reminder to me in American culture, people think in, in circles of love, and here's my family, here's my extended family, here's people I go to church with, and yet the Bible doesn't talk about people you do church with that way. The Bible uh, routinely calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. We're joined heirs together. We're under the Father. We've all been adopted together. Paul views them as family. This is the familial depth of love. There's this affectionate parental love. Paul was no burden to them because he was burdened for them. I'm, I'm in my 40s, right? I'm like, I'm like knocking on 50. My kids tell me all the time, you old, Dad. I embrace it. I'm in my 40s. I go to visit my dad a couple years ago in Kentucky. We go out there at Thanksgiving. I don't know, 44, 45 years of age. I drove my family all the way from here. I've got a mortgage. I've got a job. I've been on my own a while. My dad's dying of cancer. I'm going to leave. He tries to slip me gas money. Like, come on. Dad, stop. And then he gives me that look. Like, all right. Take it. My in-laws lived with us for, for nine months almost. Wouldn't let us pay for groceries. I'm like sending my 11-year-old on a mission to, to grab the receipt so I can pay him back. Take him out for dinner. Hey, let's go out to dinner. You're down. Let's go out for dinner. Waitress, he doesn't get the check. That's here. They won't let you pay. Why? Why? I mean, I just want to bless them, right? Like, no, we're the parent. You're not. Okay. That's just the way it is. It, I think it's fascinating that this is thousands of years removed. Culture's really no different. That, you know what that tells you? That it's not a cultural issue. This has everything to do with God hardwiring into good parents with the way they view their kids. And they don't, good parents don't view their kids as someone to take from. They view them as people to give to. And that's how Paul thought about ministry. Do you think about other people in this room that way? Not as someone to take from, but somebody to give to. To the point that it hurts. You'll go without. One of the biggest fears most parents have is, did I do enough for my kids? And I wish I did more. You just love them. You just want to do it. It's your joy. Something weird. Moms, moms love to do laundry for you. Like, I'd come home, my mother would want to do my laundry. They miss serving their kids. There's this natural parental affection that happens. Good parents are hardwired out of a deep, unearned, undeserved, undeniable, affectionate love for the children. This is fascinating to me because during his apostolic ministry, Paul isn't even married and he doesn't have kids. Now you can make an argument, and I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, Paul was a Pharisee, Pharisees were typically required, required to be married, so it could have been Paul had been married previously and was a widower, or, or maybe, maybe even had been left by his wife. We don't know. But here, clearly, he's not married and he doesn't have children. But Paul's sitting and he's like, what better picture could there be for the way I should think about the way I love people I minister to? He's staying in people's houses sometimes. Little baby's getting born. He's hearing that baby cry. It's three in the morning. Mom crawling out of bed, going to nurse the baby. And Paul's like, that's how it feels. They're making tents all day. Right? And Seth shows up. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm ready to crawl in bed. I've got to get up at five in the morning. Them sailors start early. He's got some theological question. That's what it feels like. You need 
and I want to serve you. Uh, he, he exhorts, and he encourages. My, my dad never had a hesitation to correct me because I'm his kid. You go to let me out at youth activities. Remember who you belong to. They're like, okay, dad, no, who do you belong to? And so you belong to Jesus and you belong to me. Don't mess with either one of our names or reputations. You don't have any problem just speaking truth. Paul viewed them as people to speak truth to. I'm burdened for you because I love you. It, it wasn't hard for Paul to avoid being harsh because he's speaking truth out of an affectionate, deep, abiding love. Do you know what really needs to change is our heart attitude here. Trusted ministry is loving ministry. Parents operate this way for the sake of their children. Do you see the ministry moments of life like being sacrificial parents? Nothing is more important than this kind of loving heart attitude and motivation. He says it this way in 1 John, because I honestly feel very insufficient for this. And the reason I feel insufficient for this is a couple. First of all, I'm just really well aware of how selfish I am. And probably the people around me are even more aware of how selfish I am. Number two, you know, the day I got married is just a, this moment of love and affection. And you learn as you're married longer, love deeper. You should and better. And honestly, that should happen because you both become more like Jesus. Because that's what true love is, right? Is the more I'm like Christ. But it didn't have to, it didn't have to grow the same way the first time they handed me my son. It's just boom. And the problem is, if we think that that's the way ministry love should also feel, that it's just boom. And even if it's hard getting up, it's hard taking care of them, hard doing this, hard teaching them, hard working through homework, hard disciplining, hard teaching, hard, if, hard dealing with, with character issues, hard dealing with discipleship issues, it's hard, it's hard, I've got to feed them, I've got to deal with them, throwing spaghetti on the floor when they're little and, and, and not eating their corn and, and being mad at me and not cutting the grass right. And I gotta, it's hard, it's hard, but you've got, still got, you've got this love for them. You just love them, you just do. You can't even explain, you just love them, right? And, that, and like many of you have... have Raise your own kids. Maybe you've raised other people's kids. Maybe you've loved my kids. So you know that that doesn't even have necessarily have to be your own physical child, but rather it's just God is giving you a heart of affection, and it's just from there, and you hear this about ministry, and you don't feel that way about other people. And so if you're like me, you could be discouraged by that. And if you wait, get this now, if you wait for the feelings to show up before you start doing it, it'll never happen. But the theological truth is unpacked in 1 John. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us, sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfect, perfected in us. We love because we've been loved, and because his love is dwelling in us. I'm actually not calling you to work up love. I'm calling you to walk in the power and with the resources Jesus has already put in you. Now, I've preached to your heart, hopefully, to our souls, so that we learn to do trust in ministry, and I'm just going to finish real practical. What does this really look like? 
How, what does it look like practically to be burdened for people but not be a burden to them while you're ministering to them? I'll break it down in two ways to you. Physical needs and spiritual. I'm just going to give you like four or five applications for how you minister to someone who's physically needy so that you, because you're burdened for them, so you're not a burden to them. Number one, number one, reach out to them. Don't wait for them to contact you. Boy, if they ask, I'm there. Uh -uh, uh -uh, Wrong answer. Reach out to them. Don't wait for them to contact contact you. Uh, I love this quote. Curiosity wants to know what's going on. Caring wants the person to know they're not forgotten. I'm like, zing. Curiosity wants to know. Caring wants the person to know they're not forgotten. Number three. Don't say, let me know if you need anything. You need to strike that from your vocabulary. You need to excise that from the way you think or speak. Don't ask physically needy people, let me know if there's anything you need. They have neither the time, mental, emotional reserves to come up with something creative for you to do to serve them. They don't. Don't say that. But you're like, Steve, I want to serve. I don't know what will bless them great i got some suggestions if you don't know what to do pray about it ask god for some creativity think about what blesses you and offer it i can i do this for you or ask somebody else that's experienced physical neediness hey could you give me a list of things that blessed you because i got this other friend over here and i see they're suffering i'm not sure what i can do to bless them you got some ideas what are some things that blessed you? So don't put it on the one who's hurting. That's being a burden to them rather than being burdened for them. And, then, and this one ties in it. Don't expect a thank you note. Don't ask for one. Don't look for one. Well, I served so-and-so. They didn't even say thank you. Well, that's actually God's kindness to you because then your reward can be in heaven than here. Don't get mad if you offer to serve them in a way and they don't take you up on it. Sometimes it's a blessing to someone that you said, hey, I don't know if this would be a blessing to you, but could I do this, this, and this for you? And they're like, "Mm, thank you so much, but no. Because for whatever reason, it wouldn't. Look, you're not burdened for them in that moment if your nose gets bent out of shape because they tell you that. Then you've made it about you, not about Jesus and them. And so instead, don't expect a thank you note, don't expect gratitude. Realize this, sometimes maybe Jesus laid something on your heart to serve them with just because they wanted to be blessed. God wanted to bless them that they're not forgotten. So be willing for that. When making them a meal, this one's super practical, use containers that don't have to be returned. Now this is my favorite dish. (laughs) It's not a blessing. When you're physically needy, you don't care if it's in the cheapest Tupperware from, from Walmart. Just it's a blessing to get the food. Last one, physically, and then we'll talk about spiritual and we'll be all done. Contact them between the hours of 9 to 9. <laughs> don't wake up physically needy people. <laughs> right? um, be cognizant of the rhythms of life. They want to reach out to you in between, uh, outside those hours? Fine. Make myself available at any time. That's fine. There's people in this room 
People in this church have contacted me two, three, literally every hour of the day. Fine. Please don't feel guilty about that. Please don't ever hesitate. That's not a problem. Because that was a hurting person looking for help. No problem. So be like that. I don't care. You can kind of, but don't, don't burden them by infringing upon them. And then spiritual needs. How do you serve someone spiritually? Meet at a time convenient for them. Flex as much as possible to bless them. That can look differently in different seasons of life. There's been seasons in our family's life where um, I'll just out my wife. She's like, man, I just really would like to meet with a person to pray together. Bible says, so we look at our family calendar. And you can't, honestly, you can't do this if you don't steward your life well. So you look at a calendar and it's like, okay, we got this spot and this spot. This is what we can do. I mean, we're flexing everything, both of them, frankly, a little inconvenient, but we can make these happen. And so then she'll reach out and say, hey, I, I'd love to get good. I can do this or this. Does that work with you? And if the person said, no, that just doesn't work with you, she wasn't offended. She just went to somebody else. But it's a mindset. As much as I can flex, I'm going to do it because I want to serve you, not create hurdles for you to receive spiritual ministry. Considering covering the cost of any materials they may need. We're working through a book together. Hey, can I bless you that way? Um, I want to serve you this way. I want to cover this. Let me, let me invest in you. Well, it'd be really good for them to take ownership of that and pay. Let's have that conversation if you've been counseling somebody for like five years. But like right here, let's just think about the fact that by and large, you might need to adjust your budget to bless them. That's just a way. I'm just not sure. Could you just go back and read the text then? Spend and be spent. Be ready to be exhausted in a long haul. It's actually in this kind of ministry to spiritually needy people in Galatians 6 that Paul says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Most growth does not happen in the short term, happens in the long term. And I'm just going to tell you, you'll get tired of it before it's done. They don't arrive at the same moment. Maybe two more. You aren't the Holy Spirit. So join them where God's changing them and not where you think they need to change. See, sometimes we get invested in people's lives spiritually because we see needs, and we're like, we're going to help them grow. And instead, you get together with them, and that's not where God's working on them. Maybe he's working on you in a different way. And then lastly, don't make their growth a test of your identity. Paul didn't come to these people to get from them. He came to get them souls. Learn to do trusted ministry that points to Jesus and not us. And I'm just going to leave you with this last question. Why did the church at Thessalonica say, we love you, Paul? Why did the Macedonians say, we give ourselves to God and to you, Paul? And the church at Corinth say, we don't trust you, when he did the same. And next week, we want to dig into the heart that doesn't receive trusted ministry. But let's be people on mission for trusted ministry because it glorifies God and not us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have been served. Everyone in this room has been served at different times in their life by people different times in their lives by people who've just loved you and loved us. Lord, people put up with us. We, we tend to think we forbear others. The reality is lots of people out there are just putting up with our nonsense. Father, would you just humble us before the call to love others? Like a parent loves a child. God, we're honest, that's just so costly. It's one thing when it feels like they're ours. I, <laughs> they're my home. It's another thing when they're just in my church or in my community? Lord, would you help to heal hurts? 
in this room this morning and inflame us by the power of the Spirit to be the kind of people who love exhaustingly, who, who love deeply, Father, but also people who love righteously. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.